Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And as you can probably tell either from the thumbnail or the screenshot on your screen right now, we're going to be talking today about the Supreme Court of the United States on a topic that is of a bit more seriousness than we often talk about here in Virtual Legality. What is that topic? Well, as the SCOTUS blog tweeted out last night, breaking. Supreme Court allows Texas abortion ban to remain in effect. The court rejects emergency requests to block the law, which bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy in defiance of Roe v. Wade. The law took effect 24 hours ago, and opinions are here. Now, we're, of course, going to be looking at those opinions as part of this video. But before we get into the substance of those opinions and really of the argument itself, I do want to take a side note and say, yes, we're going to be talking about abortions today, and that's a very serious subject matter. And a number of folks across the country, across the world, have very strong opinions one way or the other on the abortion question, on the legality of such, on Roe v. Wade, and all of those things. And I'm fully cognizant of that. And I do want to say, for the best of my ability, we're going to be avoiding talking about the substance of that debate, whether it's yes, no, life, choice, whatever it might be. We're instead going to be focusing on how the court arrived at this particular position, the strangeness of the operation of the quote-unquote shadow docket, which I'll be explaining a little bit more as part of this video, and the overall procedural questions that lead to both an opinion, which isn't really an opinion that is satisfactory and not, and dissents that are also satisfactory and not. So we're going to be talking through the entire issue here, primarily because if you look at the way this has been treated online and everywhere else, you've got a lot of folks making very strong statements about what happened last night. And in all honesty, I don't know that a lot of people have a great grasp on what happened last night. And I don't blame them because this is a fairly novel set of circumstances in a very unusual set of facts and resulting in a fairly important denial of an injunction that will have ramifications both in Texas and probably around the country in a way that is pretty easily foreseen and yet doesn't actually relate to the constitutionality of the law at issue. If none of that made sense, bear with me. We're about to get into it. The elephant in the room, of course, as described in that tweet, is Roe v. Wade, the presidential case that established, as is said here, that with respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in potential life, the compelling point is at viability. This is so because the fetus then presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb. State regulation protective of fetal life after viability thus has both logical and biological justifications. And in fact, you don't have to agree with any of that, even from Roe v. Wade, but it's important to note what that case did. It said there's a constitutional right to privacy, that that right to privacy extends to the right to an abort, uh, a fetus in a mother's womb, and the state can only jump in and regulate that process after the point of viability, which different places have different dates, but I think is generally considered to be about 24 weeks. Texas disagreed, and in their bill, which I think is SB1, found the following. The legislature finds, according to contemporary medical research, that fetal heartbeat has become a key medical predictor that an unborn child will reach live birth, and that Texas has compelling interests from the outset of a woman's pregnancy in protecting the health of the woman and the life of the unborn child. Texas comes in and says, we think it's a different time 
that we have a compelling interest to regulate the abortion process. And that's directly against Roe v. Wade, which as it stands today is federal law. It's a federal finding of the Supreme Court that there are these constitutional rights and that a state can't do certain things after or before the point of viability. They can't prohibit things before that point. Texas disagrees and does the following in their bill. It says, except as provided in certain exceptions, a physician may not knowingly perform or induce an abortion on a pregnant woman unless the physician has determined in accordance with this section whether the woman's unborn child has a detectable fetal heartbeat. And again, there are a number of different sources on these various things, but if you look around online, this appears to be at about the six-week mark. Nobody would argue that it is past that viability point that Roe v. Wade set, so the actual week isn't in question. It's just worth it to know that the issue here is that Texas has prohibited abortions if they are past the heartbeat finding stage. A physician may not knowingly perform or induce an abortion on a pregnant woman if the physician detected a fetal heartbeat, and that is going to be pretty darn early in the pregnancy. So you look at this and you say, well, Rick, you just said it's completely against Roe v. Wade. It's a law that appears to be unconstitutional, at least based on the current precedent of the Supreme Court on its face. What was the issue here? Well, Texas had a trick up its sleeve in putting forth this law, and that trick was the following. We scroll down. And we see that the actual prohibition here doesn't allow the state of Texas to do anything. They have a section called civil liability for violation or aiding or abetting violation. And they say as follows, any person other than an officer or employee of a state or local governmental entity in this state may bring a civil action against any person who performs or induces an abortion in violation of this subchapter knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, such as paying for it, regardless of whether the person knew or should have known that the abortion would be performed or induced in violation of the subchapter, or intends to engage in some of that conduct. If the claimant, which remember is a citizen of Texas, prevails in an action brought under this section, the court, more on that in a second, shall award injunctive relief sufficient to prevent the defendant from violating the subchapter and statutory damages in an amount not less than $10,000 per abortion. So what this law does is says the citizens of Texas can go and follow abortion providers and tell the court that they are providing these abortions in violation of the law and the court will enjoin that behavior and award $10,000 per abortion to the citizen in Texas that has provided this information to the court. It's a deputizing of the citizenry in a fashion that would conceivably allow Texas to do what it otherwise couldn't if it had said that the attorney general or some other party in their state government was going to enforce these rules. Now, why did Texas do all this? The important part of understanding that question is the jurisprudence now more than 100 years old that says the federal government can't do certain things against states, but it can enjoin state action. Here in a case called Ex Parte Young, the court says as follows, while the court cannot control the exercise of the discretion of an executive officer operating at the state level, an injunction preventing such officer from enforcing an unconstitutional statute 
is not an interference with his discretion. So if you're going to go and ask the court to stop something of this nature, very often you would go and ask the court to enjoin the attorney general or the governor or whoever else might have the enforcement power of the law that has been passed. And the federal court system can go and say, yeah, that's probably an unconstitutional law. We can enjoin that behavior. Texas, by instead deputizing their citizenry, avoids this problem. Maybe. Continuing with Ex parte Young, the court says, while making a state officer who has no connection with the enforcement of an act alleged to be unconstitutional a party, defendant is merely making him a party as a representative of the state and thereby amounts to making the state a party within the prohibition of the 11th Amendment. So one of the things that tried to be done in this particular case is that they brought in the executives that they would ordinarily bring in. They brought in state judges that would have to enforce the injunction under that law. They did that kind of thing. And ex parte Young has a problem with just generalized state officials. That problem is writ large in the 11th Amendment that says the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects of any foreign state. This is the basis for what modern jurisprudence says is sovereign immunity for the states, that you can't sue the states in general. So Ex parte Young says, if you're just bringing up a representative of the state to stand in as Michigan or Texas or New York, that's not going to work under the 11th Amendment. Individuals who, as officers of the state, are clothed with some duty in regard to the enforcement of the laws of the state and who threaten and are about to commence an action, either civil or criminal, to enforce an an unconstitutional state statute may be enjoined from so doing by a federal court. So the distinction is the person has to have power. And there's other parts of this actual case that says it doesn't actually even have to be stated power if it would be understood to have that power. So Texas actually has to go so far as to prohibit the state action other than an officer or employee of a state or local governmental entity in this state. Anybody except us can enforce this thing to get out of an injunction under ex parte young. And the court system doesn't really have a great way right now, precedentially, to handle it. Even the state judge's question, which might seem like a good avenue, it certainly does to me, has a problem under this particular set of precedential jurisprudence. Ex parte Young continues, under such conditions as are involved in this case, the federal court may enjoin an individual or state officer from enforcing a state statute on account of its unconstitutionality, but it may not restrain the state court from acting in any case brought before it either of a civil or criminal nature or prevent any investigation or action by a grand jury. An injunction by a federal court against a state court would violate the whole scheme of this government. And it does not follow that because an individual may be enjoined from doing certain things, a court may be similarly enjoined. So there's an open question in black and white under the precedent that is most often cited for injunctions of this nature of whether or not you could do anything to the state judges who would be representatives of the court in question, which leaves us at, "Mm, Texas was clever. Were they too clever by half? It would still seem that if you've got a law that on its face is unconstitutional, the judicial system should be able to do something about it. And indeed, it appeared to be going in that direction until last week, where the Fifth Circuit on Friday night, as reported here, canceled a hearing planned for Monday at which more than 20 abortion providers had hoped to persuade a federal district court in Austin to block the law from taking effect. So they were going through the normal kind of federal district court process 
And the Fifth Circuit, which controls the circuit of federal courts under their jurisdiction, said, no, no, we're putting a stay on those proceedings. What is reported on here is canceled a hearing. Late on Saturday, provider groups, including Planned Parenthood Center for Choice and Whole Woman's Health Alliance, filed emergency motions with that Fifth Circuit, essentially asking it to send the case back to district court or for the appellate court itself to issue a stay that would temporarily block the law's enforcement. And the Fifth Circuit denied the emergency motions Sunday afternoon. So in terms of the set of facts that happened here in Texas, they were going through a federal court procedure that appeared to be heading towards an injunction hearing that would have had some effect one way or the other. The circuit court actually steps in and stops those proceedings. Over the weekend, there's emergency filings made with that circuit and they are denied in their entirety by that circuit court, which leads us to that shadow docket. What is the shadow docket of the Supreme Court? Well, you can look at various sources and they have certain different definitions for this, but in raw respects, the term shadow docket as listed in this article refers to the thousands of decisions the Supreme Court hands down each term that defy its normal procedural regularity. These shadow docket orders often do not include information about how each justice voted or why the majority came to a certain conclusion, potentially leaving lower courts in the dark about how to apply Supreme Court precedent moving forward. To seek emergency relief from the court on the shadow docket and thus sidestep the formal appeals process, an applicant must prove that they will suffer irreparable harm if their request is not immediately granted. While only eight such applications for emergency relief were filed by the Department of Justice between 2001 and 2017, so 16 years, the Trump administration filed 41 such applications in just four years. The dissents demonstrate another troubling trend that Vladek identified during the hearing of the eight emergency relief applications filed by the Bush and Obama administrations between 2001 and 2017. Only one resulted in a public dissent, but of the 36 heard under the Trump administration, 27 applications resulted in such dissenting opinions, demonstrating the more polarizing nature of recent shadow docket decisions, which is all a long way of saying This is the way that you go and seek a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order, as we might see in the trial court stages if you've been following things like Epic versus Apple on this channel. But instead, you go straight to the Supreme Court and say, the circuits aren't giving us redress. The district court isn't giving us redress. We have an emergency right now. We'll suffer irreparable harm if we don't get this granted by the Supreme Court. And you turn it into the justice that represents your circuit and they evaluate it and send it on to the rest of the court or deny it on its face and do all these various other things with us and leads us to something like what happened overnight in which we get the sentence, the application for injunctive relief or in the alternative to vacate stays of the district court proceedings presented to Justice Alito representing the Fifth Circuit and by him referred to the court is denied. So before we get into the reasons for that and we discuss that, the state of play is State of Texas passed a bill, seems unconstitutional on its face, but deputizes its citizenry in a way that confounds the normal court jurisprudence and the normal injunctive setup. They're going through the district court setup. The Fifth Circuit says, no, a stay on these proceedings. And then they are asked by the plaintiffs here to make a judgment on their own, to have the Supreme Court issue that injunctive relief itself, or to just vacate the stay that the Fifth Circuit put in place And the Supreme Court decides not to do that. Why did the Supreme Court decide not to do that? Well, as Justice Alito says, to prevail in an application for a stay or an injunction, an applicant must carry the burden of making a strong showing that it is likely to succeed on the merits, that it will be irreparably injured absent the stay, 
that the balance of the equities favors it, that fairness and justice is on its side, and that a stay is consistent with the public interest. Then he cites a bunch of cases. The applicants now before us have raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law at issue. And I, I think that's right, that especially based on Roe versus Wade precedent, it seems to be problematic on its face. So why then did the Supreme Court not act in this instance? Justice Alito continues, their application also presents complex and novel antecedent procedural questions on which they have not carried their burden. So this is a phrase that is very likely to go down in some form of history uh, because this is an important kind of shadow docket decision. It's likely to result in, I think, more regulation of the court and et cetera, et cetera. But the phrase complex and novel antecedent procedural questions effectively means that regardless of whether the law is constitutional or not, there are questions related to whether the court can hear the case that are new. And before we get to the constitutionality question, that's the antecedent in novel antecedent. What is that particular issue? Well, Justice Alito says, for example, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. We don't enjoin laws here at the Supreme Court. We can overturn them. We can find them unconstitutional if we go through the full merits process. But when we're talking about injunctions, we talk about people. And he points the court to the most recent Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act case, which held that plaintiffs do not have standing to challenge the minimum essential coverage provision because they have not shown a past or future injury fairly traceable to defendant's conduct enforcing the specific statutory provision they attack as unconstitutional, which is very legal easy way of saying, yes, there might be an unconstitutional element of this particular case, but you lack standing or as this particular summary of the holding says, unenforceable statutory language alone is not sufficient to establish standing as the redressability requirement makes clear. The only relief sought regarding the minimal essential coverage provision is declaratory relief, namely a judicial statement that the provision challenge is unconstitutional. But just like suits for every other type of remedy, declaratory judgment actions must satisfy Article 3's case or controversy requirement. Article 3 standing requires identification of a remedy that will redress the individual plaintiff's injuries, and no such remedy exists here. To find standing to attack an unenforceable statutory provision would allow a federal court to issue what would amount to an advisory opinion without the possibility of an Article 3 remedy. Article 3 guards against federal courts assuming this kind of jurisdiction. That's right. Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution limits the power of the judiciary. We talk about the three branches of government a fair amount here in virtual legality. But the legislature writes the laws, the executive executes the laws, and the judiciary decides cases and controversies before it. And different jurisdictions, if you're not in the United States, have different feelings on these kinds of things. Many, many courts issue advisory opinions. Somebody can go and ask them to find that a specific rule or regulation is unconstitutional or otherwise how it should be interpreted. The U.S. Supreme Court, as part of the checks and balances concept, is designed in the Constitution to only be able to address cases and controversies, things that are actually pending, that it can fix before the court and not to issue these declaratory judgments. So Alito, by pointing us to standing questions, is pointing us to a procedural issue that he thinks is limiting the court from actually hearing this particular case right now as it stands at the injunction level because he doesn't think that standing has necessarily actually been established. He says it is unclear 
whether the named defendants in this lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against the applicants in a manner that might permit our intervention. The state has represented that neither it nor its executive employees possess the authority to enforce the Texas law, either directly or indirectly. Nor is it clear whether under existing precedent, this court can even issue an injunction against state judges asked to decide a lawsuit under Texas's law. So he has a statement here that says there's real big questions about the constitutionality of all this, but I'm not sure that what's happening here is something that we can actually enjoin because ex parte young doesn't appear to cover this particular issue. In light of such issues, we cannot say the applicants have met their burden to prevail in an injunction or stay application. In reaching this conclusion, we stress that we do not purport to resolve definitively any jurisdictional or substantive claim in the applicant's lawsuit. In particular, this order is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law, including in Texas state courts. This is very important, and I think this is being missed all over the place, which is that Justice Alito, in making this decision, and you can hate every bit of it and think that he's effectively lying here, is saying that this isn't a question of reading the law. This isn't a merits decision that the court is reaching today with these five votes. It is instead a question of, on the existing precedent, which has language that talks about federal courts not taking action against state courts and injunctions applying specifically to state government officials, that in that particular context, he doesn't believe that the court itself can enjoin something here. And he and other four justices agree with that particular stand standing. Now, I think that that makes a certain amount of sense with the precedent that has been put forth. But it's also very, very unsatisfying when you are looking at a law that appears to fly in the face of federal jurisprudence, however you might feel about that jurisprudence itself. Interestingly, this is a standing kick the can down the road kind of concept that I believe Justice Alito effectively learned from Justice Roberts. This is a Roberts standard to say, well, this is something that is very, very important, but the court shouldn't opine on it right now because of reasons. And so we're going to kick this can down the road. That's what Justice Alito did here. Justice Roberts, however, disagrees in this particular instance. Why? He says the statutory scheme before the court is not only unusual, but unprecedented. The legislature has imposed a prohibition on abortions after roughly six weeks and then essentially delegated enforcement of that prohibition to the populace at large. The desired consequence appears to be to insulate the state from responsibility for implementing and enforcing the regulatory regime. The state defendants argue that they cannot be restrained from enforcing their rules because they do not enforce them in the first place. I, Justice Roberts, would grant preliminary relief to preserve the status quo ante before the law went into effect so that the courts may consider whether a state can avoid responsibility for its laws in such a manner. Defendants argue that existing doctrines preclude judicial intervention and they may be correct, but the consequences of approving the state action, both in this particular case and as a model for action in other areas, more on that in a second, counsel at least preliminary judicial consideration before the program devised by the state takes effect. So we're going to get to the rest of Robert's opinion in just a second. But it's important to note what he is saying, especially with this language. Defendants argue that existing doctrines preclude judicial intervention, and they may be correct in California versus Texas. Roberts has always been, regardless of how you feel about him, and if you've been in virtual legality for a while, you know how I do, 
a kind of legal pragmatist. He looks at the issue and isn't as bound necessarily by either the words in the Constitution or any other kind of scheme that might prevail over his opinion making. He, he comes to every question and looks at it from a kind of holistic perspective. And he looks at this and says, yeah, the other justices might be right that ex parte young and some of the other language that are covering the Supreme Court would appear to prevent us from talking about this on an injunctive basis. But this is so weird. And the state is so clearly defiant of the federal judiciary deliberately that he would say, what's the harm in essentially enjoining this right now and letting the court system do its job. He says, we are at this point asked to resolve these novel questions, at least preliminarily, in the first instance, in the course of two days, without the benefit of consideration by the district court or court of appeals. The Supreme Court doesn't make fact findings. It gets a whole bevy of information, both from the district court and the court of appeals, and also from other parties that have an interest in whatever decision it's making. It gets reams and reams and reams of paper that are read by the justices and their clerks before they make a decision. In a circumstance like this, on the shadow docket, they don't get that. They get essentially briefs from both parties and they make a decision. That clearly discomforts Chief Justice Roberts, and I can't really blame him for that. These questions are particularly difficult, he says, including, for example, whether the exception to sovereign immunity recognized in ex parte young should extend to state court judges in circumstances such as these. I would accordingly preclude enforcement of this particular bill by the respondents to afford the district court and the court of appeals the opportunity to consider the propriety of judicial action and preliminary relief pending consideration of the plaintiff's claims. Although the court denies the applicant's request for emergency relief today, the court's order is emphatic in making clear that it cannot be understood as sustaining the constitutionality of the law at issue. At such time, the question could be decided after full briefing and oral argument with consideration of whether the interim relief is appropriate should enforcement of the law be allowed below. So this is the conservative side of the court, right? We generally think of Roberts that way, certainly Alito and the others that would have voted with him to make this the opinion of the court, generally described uh, by most as the conservative branch of the court. And we can see that the substance of the question, abortion, may be impacting some of this decision. I promised you at the top of this video, we would talk about what this kind of portends for what abortion jurisprudence might be in the future. And I do think that those that look at a situation like this and say that the court, even without Roberts, is at least 5-4 signaling that it would seek to reevaluate the constitutionality question, I think those people are justified. Because I think even if you're Alito or anybody else on this side of the court and you look at something that is facially unconstitutional, you probably aren't just relying on standing or procedural questions to avoid opining on those things. Roberts makes a good point when he suggests, look, this has been jurisprudence. This has been precedent for a very, very long time now. Let's enjoin this as essentially a precautionary principle kind of device and let the court do its work without having these significant ramifications for abortion providers in Texas that are going to have to stop doing this, at least at present, even before somebody sues them over it in order to avoid violating the law, which will be on the books, is on the books as of right now. And it pains me to say so, but I understand where Roberts is coming from. And I think he makes a good point, even if it's essentially, hey, our doctrines might preclude it, but I'm worried about what this means. And the reason I agree with him on this point 
is that I do think you're opening the door wide open if you're not going to decide these things at an injunctive level. What do I mean by that? He says, both in this particular case and as a model for action in other areas, counsel at least preliminary judicial consideration. What does that mean? It means that this concept, this trick of law, this loophole, this cleverness of Texas could be used for virtually anything. The folks online, on Twitter and elsewhere think, well, every red state will do this on abortion rules, but they think too little. Their imagination is not grand enough. You don't even have to limit it to red states if you want. Let's talk about vaccine mandates. Let's talk about mask mandates. Let's talk about anything else that you don't like. What is preventing a state from deputizing its citizenry under this, not quite precedent, but at least on the shadow docket, if it should choose to do so? Why couldn't a state say, well, uh, we're banning the possession of firearms uh, and uh, the state government isn't allowed to enforce this rule at all. But if you see somebody with a firearm, you tell the court about it. The court will take that firearm away and it'll give you $10,000 of that person's money. It's obvious enough that that's a violation of the Second Amendment. But under this particular set of facts, it would appear to follow the Texas problem, if you will, to say, well, we don't know if we can enjoin that. And once you say you can't enjoin it on an emergency basis at the Supreme Court level, you and I in virtual legality know that the court system is slow and expensive enough that these kinds of things can survive a very, very long time without you getting the redress that the Constitution would appear to afford you. So Chief Justice Roberts, as a pragmatist, is looking at this and saying, you have no idea what door this opens for everyone. We're talking about abortions right now. And People have very strong feelings. Those same people that have strong feelings on one way or the other might have the opposite feeling on issue X, Y, or Z. And what we have given is a roadmap for the states to follow to get out of judicial scrutiny in a fashion that couldn't possibly be the way the Constitution intended and won't be the way one would presume after these kinds of cases actually get up to merits review by the Supreme Court. So we're talking about maybe a window here where Texas and other states can pull a trick like this. But if you allow that for any period of time, we're talking about the possibility of hundreds of laws on the books that use this particular trick, deputizing the citizenry in a manner that is unconstitutional, really, on its face. That's the conservative side. The liberal side of the court takes some other arguments very strongly, and I think they make a number of excellent points as well. Here's Justice Breyer. He says, the state cannot delegate a veto power here over the right to obtain an abortion, which the state itself is absolutely and totally prohibited from exercising during the first trimester of pregnancy. And that's right. The overall standard, not just on abortion questions, is that the government of the United States can't delegate to others what it can't do itself. This is a topic we've discussed in virtual legality in connection with tech companies. We just talked about whether or not the U.S. federal government or other state governments are encouraging, enticing, or otherwise manipulating places like Twitter or Facebook or otherwise to do their bidding. Now, I've found fault in that particular argument, but one can imagine a circumstance in which the federal government did something that required platforms to violate the First Amendment. And once that happens, those platforms are state actors. We have all this jurisprudence that says the government is doing the bad thing. Similarly, the federal government can't deputize the state governments to do something on its behalf that the federal government wouldn't be permitted to do under the U.S. Constitution. And under that reasoning, it makes sense to say that state can't deputize its citizenry to do what it can't do on its own, either in violation of its state or, in this case, 
federal constitution. So I think Justice Breyer makes a good point as to why this trick shouldn't work. And the problem is, this is all great for a merits kind of review of the case, that this doesn't get them out of being unconstitutional. Alito is making his decision on a standing question, kicking it down the road under ex parte young. And there's no real great response to that other than it shouldn't be that way, which is what Justice Breyer winds up saying. The very bringing into effect of Texas's law may well threaten the applicants with imminent and serious harm. And the applicants with supporting affidavits claim that clinics will be unable to run the financial and other risks that come from waiting for a private person to sue them under the Texas law. They will simply close depriving care to more than half the women seeking abortions in Texas clinics. We have permitted those whom a law threatens with constitutional harm to bring pre-enforcement challenges to the law where the harm is less serious and the threat of enforcement less certain than the harm and the threat here. I recognize that Texas's law delegates the state's power to prevent abortions not to one person or to a few persons, but to any person. But I do not see why that fact should make a critical legal difference. That delegation still threatens to invade a constitutional right and the coming into effect of that delegation still threatens imminent harm. It should prove possible to apply procedures adequate to the task here, perhaps by permitting lawsuits against a subset of delegatees, say those particularly likely to exercise the delegated powers, or perhaps by permitting lawsuits against officials whose actions are necessary to implement the statute's enforcement powers, like those judges that were tried to be brought up. Essentially, this is an argument that that language we read in Ex Parte Young goes too far because they hadn't anticipated something like this from Texas. And I think, again, he makes good logical points as to why that might be the case. We talk all the time in the Supreme Court about enjoining behaviors on unconstitutional things. For the First Amendment, for instance, we call it prior restraint. When the government just threatens to do something against you, you can bring that lawsuit. Here, the clinics are reporting that they have to close because of this law. I don't have any reason to disregard that kind of testimony. And so you have an effect of a law that most look at and say that appears to be unconstitutional on its face. As the Chief Justice writes, this court should not permit the law to take effect without assuring the applicants and the respondents an opportunity first and fully to make or to refute these and other arguments supporting the request for an injunction. Essentially, this came in too hot, this happened too fast, and the Supreme Court, through its powers of equity, should lean on the side of enjoining a very odd, very potentially clever Texas law that appears to be unconstitutional, but that Supreme Court jurisprudence might presently prevent the court from opining on. Justice Sotomayor makes a stronger unconstitutionality case. The court's order is stunning. A a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in in the sand. Today, the court belatedly explains that it declined to grant relief because of procedural complexities of the state's own invention. The act is clearly unconstitutional under existing precedents. The state may not impose an undue burden on the woman's ability to obtain an abortion of a non-viable fetus. The respondents do not even try to argue otherwise, nor could they. No federal appellate court has upheld such a comprehensive prohibition on abortions before viability under current law. The Texas legislature was well aware of this binding precedent to circumvent it. The legislature took the extraordinary step of enlisting private citizens to do what the state could not. In effect, the Texas legislature has deputized the state citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbors' medical procedures. Taken together, the act is a breathtaking act of defiance of the Constitution, of this court's precedents, and of the rights of women seeking abortions throughout Texas. But over six weeks after the applicants filed suit to prevent the act from taking effect, 
a Fifth Circuit panel abruptly stayed all proceedings before the district court and vacated a preliminary injunction hearing that was scheduled to begin on Monday. Today, the court finally tells the nation that it declined to act because, in short, the state's gambit worked. The structure of the state's scheme, the court reasons, raises complex and novel antecedent procedural questions that counsel against granting the application, just as the state intended. This is untenable. It cannot be the case that a state can evade federal judicial scrutiny by outsourcing the enforcement of unconstitutional laws to its citizenry. Instead, the court has rewarded the state's effort to delay federal review of a plainly unconstitutional statute enacted in disregard of the court's precedents through procedural entanglements of the state's own creation, I dissent. And I think this is very strong writing from Justice Sotomayor. And I think broadly, again, she's correct. From my perspective, regardless of how you feel about these issues, abortion, gun control, anything else, one shouldn't want as an organizational feature of the U.S. government or the state's governments within it, the deputizing of citizenry to effectively act as law enforcement on their neighbors. However that looks in practice to the state of Texas, I guarantee it looks worse in practice on the ground in the streets of the United States. You don't want this. And once we acknowledge that you don't want this, I think we can come to a conclusion that we don't want the state to be able to somehow trick the federal judiciary into allowing a law like this based on that deputizing feature. Now, does that require a change in either the U.S. law or the federal constitution? It might. Justice Alito might be correct on this, as Justice Roberts kind of hints, is the current jurisprudence of the Supreme Court, is the case and controversies requirement of Article 3. But I think most of us can agree that it's not a great way to live or to organize your society. Again, regardless of how you feel about the substance at issue, and Sotomayor's claim here that it's unconstitutional on its face, as I have said, appears to be the case, suggests something about this court decision. And again, it's the place where I think people that are concerned about this are right, which is, I don't think you come to a decision that the court has made in this nature on a procedural question if you feel that that viability, that 24 weeks line is the standard that the court has to have, that Roe v. Wade is sacrosanct. I think there is signaling by the court in a decision like this one that suggests Maybe I don't, or those five votes don't, feel that it is unconstitutional, that the state doesn't have a compelling interest before that 24-week mark. Is it some earlier mark? Is Texas's six-week mark, six mark or fetal heartbeat mark, is that something that the Supreme Court is going to accept? And I think people that are worried about that are justified in doing so, because it seems hard to believe that this simple trick would get you out of Supreme Court review if there wasn't at least a block of votes on the Supreme Court that were willing to re-examine Roe v. Wade on this question. Finally, we have Justice Kagan, who leaves the substantive discussion to Sotomayor and some of the other discussion to Breyer, but talks a little bit about the shadow docket. Without full briefing or argument, and after less than 72 hours thought, this court greenlights the operation of Texas's patently unconstitutional law banning most abortions. Today's ruling illustrates just how far the court's shadow docket decisions may depart from the usual principles of appellate process. That ruling, as everyone must agree, is of great consequence. Yet the majority has acted without any guidance from the Court of Appeals, which is right now considering the same issues. It has reviewed only the most cursory party submissions and then only hastily. And it barely bothers to explain its conclusion that a challenge to an obviously unconstitutional abortion regulation backed by a wholly unprecedented enforcement scheme is unlikely to prevail. Now, here we have to take a step back because I think that Justice Kagan is, is wrong 
with what Justice Alito said. Justice Alito didn't say it's unlikely to prevail. He instead trots out the whole list of things that you need to get an injunction. And his primary decision and the decision of the five is that it might not even be something that the court can decide upon due to a lack of what amounts to injunctive standing. And he doesn't go far to put it that way, but that's what it is. So it's not that he thinks they're unlikely to prevail on the merits. He thinks the merits might not even be reviewable at this stage, at the injunction request stage by the Supreme Court. I don't think he's suggesting that those merits aren't reviewable when you would actually have the entire case get up to the Supreme Court rather than an emergency request for injunction. But that's slightly missed here in Justice Kagan's response. That said, she makes an excellent point, which is that this is no way to run a railroad, right? Regardless of how you feel about abortion and everything else and the substance of all these questions, having the Supreme Court get an emergency request on a Monday, essentially not do anything when the law actually goes into effect, and then release a quote-unquote opinion in the middle of the night explaining why they decided not to do anything, and the reason being novel antecedent procedural questions, which isn't of any help to anybody in the United States, is not a way to have a functioning judiciary, period, regardless of the question at issue. So I think Kagan makes a good point. I think Sotomayor makes a good point. I think Breyer makes a good point. I think Roberts makes a good point. And I think Alito makes a good point, but I do question whether this would look the same way with a different substantive question before the court. Because it does seem like Texas is pretty obviously acting in defiance of the federal court system, of constitutional precedent, and using a trick that really shouldn't work. I won't expect it to work when the Supreme Court actually finally opines on it, but that does call into question exactly what the position of the Supreme Court is. And if you're worried about that, rather than going on Twitter and social media and saying this particular decision is the end of all things, which it isn't, you should look to the future where the Supreme Court has agreed to talk about this issue on a merits basis this session or in this particular court case, court to weigh in on Mississippi abortion ban intended to challenge Roe v. Wade. The court has granted review in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a challenge to the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that with limited exceptions bars abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. So again, Roe v. Wade basically says 24th week, Texas says sixth week, and Mississippi says 15th week. And the Supreme Court has agreed to hear it. The justices considered the petition 12 more times before announcing on Monday in January that they would take up the first question presented in the state's petition, whether all pre-viability bans on elective abortions violate the Constitution. The case will be heard in the fall after the justices return from their summer recess. That is where the real jurisprudence will happen. This might serve a signaling function today, and I don't blame anybody for thinking that it does. But the actual case, the actual discussion of Roe v. Wade and whether or not it will continue to have precedential import after this session of the Supreme Court will be had in argument and opinion in the 2021-2022 session. So hopefully this was an informative and educational talk as to just what happened, because I woke up to a blog post and tweet like this and was very interested to find out myself. And certainly, I think if you do have strong feelings on the substance of this question, you are right to be either concerned or excited on either direction as to how the Supreme Court is looking to go with these particular opinions. But either way, 
this particular shadow docket, non-opinion dissent thing doesn't tell you how the Supreme Court's going to go, but they're going to go some way as early as next year. This has been Virtual Legality. We're usually discussing the business and law of pop culture, video games, and technology. Obviously, we didn't do that today. But if you like having these conversations on legal matters, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon. Other ways to support in the description of the video or just subscribing, telling your friends, upvoting, commenting, letting Google and YouTube know that we're here. Every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.